Welcome to Performance Talk with your host, Ewell Gordon and Chris Costa, where professionals discuss the latest news and developments in the profession and all areas that affect sports performance, strength and conditioning, nutrition, recovery, and much more. Listen now to your host and this week's guest next on Performance Talk. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Performance Talk. My name's Ewell Gordon. We are back uh, today. I think we got a, a, a really good show. Chris is here. Uh, the band's back together. Uh, Chris, how you doing? Ewell's here. Ewell missed our last show. It's good to have him back post-COVID. No, I'm kidding. No COVID for you. Knock on wood. I've been lucky so far. Yeah, me too. Knock on wood again. How about you, Dan? We have a newborn, so we've been extremely careful, but we all got it. We all had a mild case of it, everybody. But it was mild. Sadly, you know, I've lost some friends and, you know, a lot of people I know their lives have been permanently destroyed by it. As we begin today also to, you know, where the United States is again reeling in another tragedy of school shooting. It does bother me that we have the same people who argue about not wearing masks or taking care of things. They're also arguing. It's crazy. It's insane. But yeah. Uvalde is about 30 minutes from where I am down here in Texas. Yeah, so sorry. And I... I woke up this morning and it was just like a, I don't know anybody. I don't have anybody over there, but it was a gut punch. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. My daughter's a teacher. You know, I taught, I started teaching in 1979 and I've had an armed intruder incident. And uh, I got to tell you, when you're protecting a bunch of high school kids with PVC pipe, you discover a lot about yourself. I bet. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have uh, today with us, we have Dan John. We all know who Dan is, so like he just gave us instructions uh, to do, let's just do it. We're going to talk about some things performance. We're going to talk about some things uh, informative. We'll talk about the profession a little bit, and uh, we'll kick it off with Dan. I know you're full of information. Chris and I read your stuff, and we follow you through social media and online, but for our audience, I, I will say this. I will give credit where credit's due. You're one of the greats. Since we last talked, you have your own podcast as well. So tell us a little. It's been that long? Yeah, it's been that long, man. What is it, 17? When did we talk? Holy cow. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, wow. 17, I'm pretty sure. Chris is going to tell me here in a minute. Well, he, always, he likes to do that when I'm backwards or wrong. But tell us what you've been up to since we last talked, Dan, and um, you know what you got going on that you're sinking your teeth into right now. Things are good. As a track coach, it's that kind of nice time of year. I just had my javelin thrower won the state championship in the javelin. My discus thrower won the her conference championship in her college uh, conference, obviously. So that was good. That made me very happy. In both cases, my thrower, we got her to improve. My discus thrower, she improved 50% basically in a year, which is, I'd like to take all the credit, but her work ethic is outstanding. And there's still things we have to work on, but Hey, we're trending in the right direction, you know. Right, right. And then and my javelin thrower, I think would, I think could be an international level. But the problem is, he's a high school kid in this time and date. So the football coach insists they get there every day at six thirty to lift weights, and the basketball coach insists every night they play. It's all voluntary, but if you don't, you don't make the team. Right. Yeah. He lifts weights every morning, plays basketball every night, and wedges in a state championship season in between. And the crappy thing is, for most of the athletes, this is it. They're never going to – there's a high school close to me the, that way. 
the head football coach wouldn't allow the boys to do any of the sports. So their senior wow. year, they, you know, they'd figure it out and they'd be done. November, their senior year, coach would be like, okay, see ya. And they would come out for track and the kids would ask me, why didn't I do this for four years? And I'd always say, I don't want to drop the F-bomb on your show, but I Right, don't know. but I got it. Uh, yeah. We've been right there. I'm back on the platform. I'm lifting about three or four meets a year. I have a meet coming up in uh, June in England. I'm doing fine. Doing a lot of walking. I got a new Easy Strength Omni book is the title of it. Somebody asked me the other day if it was just a reprint of the Easy Strength original book. And I'm like, no, no, that book is done. And it wasn't as good as I'd hoped. So uh, we're, you know, I'm rewriting uh, the whole book. So that's kind of exciting. That'd be book number 15. I'm traveling again, doing kettlebell certs. I'm working with Parker University, St. Mary's University over there in Twickenham, London. I've been relatively busy. Oh, uh, the big news is I now have two beehives and I'll be getting free honey this summer. So those All guys right. are well, we checked in on them and they are working very, they're busy as, uh, oh, what would you say? They are working as busy as, uh, <laughs> darn it, I don't know. But they're there very busy. Go. Yeah. Bees. Bees. <laughs> hey, look, it sounds like, and one of the things that some of our younger professionals struggle with that I hear with you is that you have some some work-life balance. Even though you're very busy, it seems like you make the time to get in some stuff for yourself. How is is that a true statement? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I do a couple of techniques. This wasn't planned, but every day I, I basically, this is my daily little, this is my personal to-do list. So before I go to bed, I make coffee. I wake up to the smell of coffee every morning. Before I go to bed, I make my to-do list. And you guys are right here podcast. That's you guys. Uh, I wake up and I do a, a 15 minute meditation to start every day. It's brain.fm's rain reflection. I don't have time to do that. Small little thing. I used to fall asleep when I meditated and some, someone gave me good advice. That means you're tired. So now I meditate when I first wake up. It sounds weird to meditate after you wake up, but it really does refresh me. Uh, and then then my other goal is to eat eight to 10 different vegetables every day. I'm at eight already, and it's just noon. And then three days a week, you know, number four is three days a week Olympic lift, three days a week mobility work, and then go for a long walk every time. And then number five is make a difference. What I try to do by about 10.30 every day, 11, is I've had my coffee. I've answered all my emails. I've answered like a, questions on forums and stuff. I've got my workout in, I ate my vegetables and protein, drank my water, and got my meditation in. So when 11 o'clock hits, I've taken care of my physical, you know, the workout, the vegetables, the protein. I've taken care of, uh, maybe, I don't know about, but I, I have an issue with concussions from American football and, a, and a, a very serious accident. And so the meditation is as good for me as anything else on my brain health. So by the time 11 o'clock rolls around, uh, I've got the business taken care of. I've gotten the emails taken, you know, I've got the stuff, you know what I mean? Right. Then I can say noon is good. We'll do a podcast at noon. Yesterday afternoon, I helped my daughter put bark in. I have plenty of time. Certainly have to arrange the coaching around things, but that's even coaching. I'm still knitting together. Like <laughs> I've gone out and coached a few times and on the way home gone grocery shopping and picked up stuff to plant in the garden. So if you take care of the basics early in the day, 
the rest of the day is pretty easy to take care of the, the funner stuff of life. Yeah. Here's a question, and, and it's a rhetorical question, but I'm just probably about four years behind you in age, somewhere in there. And it seems like the older I get, the more I want that balance. And and I'm starting to do some some of the stuff that you just mentioned. I've always gardened. I got a big garden out here. So it's me and the dog in the morning walking through and taking care of that. But the big thing is, and why we do this show is, is the younger guys, especially in their, that 28 to to 35, 36 range where you're you're just going straight ahead and there's, there's a wall there and you're going through it. You're going to knock down every obstacle. You're going to complete every task and there's no real schedule. So you're trying to do stuff. You're up late at night. I find that schedule part is critical to getting that, that work-life balance, especially if you're going to be a strength coach. And I have a daughter who's trying to get into it. And I told her, I said, Hey, you got to balance it. I lucked out. Uh, you will. When I was in the second grade, sister Maria Sumter went to the board and she drew a compass and it said, work, rest, play and pray. And pray can also be enjoying uh, nature, uh, gardening. Basically, pray was alone time. And she felt that if you could keep those four things in some kind of balance, you would have a very healthy life. I mean, it was obviously her tradition too. And then she warned us before the phrase even was around, if you work too hard, you know, become a workaholic and you let everything else shrink, you're going to pay a high price for that. Any one of the arrows that you spent too much time on was going to hurt you. So the lesson I got out of that, and this is the lesson I would share with the younger guys, the younger guys and girls and people. I can't say, I I was told I can't say guys anymore. The list of words I'm not allowed to say anymore, just really starting to bother me. But what I find this, if I do have to go into a period of more work, you know, like now this hasn't happened. Well, actually it did the last few weeks. So I'm going to do a, a bunch of kettlebell certs three weekends in a row. Very exhausting weekends. I get home Monday. I'm physically tired through Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, I'm packing again. Friday or Thursday night, I hit the ground running. Three hard, you know, that's exhausting. So when I do that, okay, I've got a tough period of rest of work. I consciously plan in, okay, I can't do the one-minute meditations this week. So, okay, small little adaption. At the RKC certs, we always tend to say, we're going to do dinner at seven o'clock and go home, shower, we'll meet you at the Casa Grande, you know. Now I say, okay, we're done. Let's all just drive over to this restaurant that's close. They're, they're very good with this, this, and this. We get there, say it's five, say we, the thing's over at 5.15, 5.30. We get to the restaurant by quarter to six. I've eaten my food. I'm socializing. I get into my hotel room at seven versus going out to dinner at seven, getting home at nine, nine thirty, ten o'clock. Right. And then of course being starving when it's time to eat versus and so bad choices. So actively planning, so on a hard work time, actively rethinking rest. And then during a hard work time, I'm gonna be out of town a lot more. So last weekend I got home from this workshop, this video day over at Parker University. When I got home, I got home, I showered, I put on some nice clothes, I went to a restaurant, and then we watched, we went out, a group of us dressed up nicely and went to Downton Abbey, the premier. So even though I was tired, I knew that I needed to be around people who care for me, people who like me, you get it? And then at the same time, now when I'm on the road, alone time is not the issue. Uh, When I'm on the road, 
that's why, you know, I always tend to have a bunch of like little paperback murder mysteries. That's one of the things I do on the road a lot is I read murder mysteries, Jessica Fletcher and Sherlock Holmes. Because I know I'm going to be alone, I prep myself for the aloneness. At the same time, I also know that I, once people show up at the cert, I'm going to be on for 12 hours. And then I'm going to be literally off for four or five before I fall asleep. So I plan that out so that I have a mentally healthy, I'm not just sitting in my room drinking Jack Daniels. You know, I'm reading a murder mystery or catching up. And I think you have to actively plan to balance things. And it's nice to have someone in your life you can, you know, uh, a balance buddy, I guess we'll call. It's nice to have a balance buddy. Someone in your life who can say, you know, you're, you're going this way or that way. In the 12-step community, they have a phrase called HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And one of the things when I'm working in goal achievement with people, those are four things I circle right away. Because if you decide to be an elite athlete, you can probably deal with hunger the easiest. Anger, things are going to make you very mad, and that's not going to necessarily help you on the road. Loneliness, you have to th- you have to think through loneliness. And I got to tell you, my phone's over there somewhere, but pretending you have friends on social sites, they're not your friend. No, that doesn't work. I've gone through that with, with a couple of athletes and, and along the lines of hearing you talk about planning and, and listening to some of the techniques and stuff you used. I've preached in the past, I think we talked about this last time, the pillars of performance equals preparation nutrition, rest and recovery. And you got to plan all that. You have to plan it and you have to build it in. When I'm hungry, I go up to my fridge and I've got this, I always make these oats and there's, they're protein in them, oatmeal. Right now there's blueberries and there's a bunch of different kinds of seeds in there. I always make extraordinarily large amounts of it and it just sits in the fridge. So if I ever find myself hungry, I reach into the fridge. Now you, you, don't, you don't have to eat what I eat, but I'll take kimchi, I'll take this oatmeal thing, I'll throw, we have these little extra vegetables floating around, I'll throw those in, and I deal with my hunger with oatmeal seeds, kimchi, diacon, fresh ginger slices, whatever. When I feed the beast, I'm not feeding it ice cream, I'm I'm not ripping on ice cream, I'm just, I'm not feeding myself ice cream and all those other stuff. So one of the things you have to do in any elite performance is build in systems to take care of you when stuff goes south. You're paying attention to what you're putting in, putting in your body. A lot of guys unconsciously eat. You know, they're hungry and, and they just, what do you got right now? And they got a big old Subway sandwich with, <laughs> you know, yeah, me, you know a, whole, a whole bottle of mayonnaise on it. You know, whatever else you can get. When I fly, as soon as they say uh, we're fourth for takeoff, or third or whatever, I put in my earphones and I do a 15-minute meditation. So my thought on that is if I do fall asleep, well, good for me, then the flight's going to be a lot shorter. But I want to put myself into a mental state that all the nonsense that happens on a flight, I will come into the problem at least relaxed and calm. I went home from St. Mary's last August. A woman passed out in the aisle next to me. And I had to do uh, first aid for her for about two hours before she, folks, if you're flying international uh, and you decide to take a a drug that'll help you sleep, don't mix alcohol with said drug. Hi, I'm Dan John. And uh, (laughs) don't 
double whiskeys with uh, <laughs> a, a, a sleep. No, yeah. It wasn't even a sleeping towel. It was a, one of those other things, you know, and it's just. Yeah, so. it's, it's not a funny situation, but uh, you fit that one in nicely. When you're flying over the North Sea and there are no places just to pull over. It's not a bus. You can't just pull over. You can't call 911 over the Atlantic Ocean, you know. Oh, man. So when that happened, the flight attendant said to me, "Why you're very calm. And I go, well, first off, I was a football coach. And trust me, having someone pass out compared to what we see on the football field and injuries, I mean, I don't want to be a, you know, a jerk, but I've also been the first person on uh, several uh, traffic accidents. And right. uh, so someone just passing out because of an OD is, is not nearly as, at least you don't want to throw up when you're helping that one, you know, right. unless they throw up and then, then it gets weird. Yeah. Then you don't know. As we continue to go further into to that subject a little bit, let's talk about having positive people around you. You touched on it a little bit earlier, but sometimes everybody that's on your team is not on your side, if that makes sense. Well, done. right there. That's it. You just summarize the entire thing. I think you need people on your side. So I'm watching this uh, Tom Brady thing on Disney Plus called The Man in the Arena. And he, he has a trainer that I, I wrote positively about the trainer, or said something positive about the book, TB12. And my God, you would have thought I advocated, you know, rape and pillage and mayhem, you know? Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, it was, it was shocking from people I know. And my thought was, you're Tom Brady and no one believed in you. So the people who did believe in you, they're on your side. Right. You know? And when you got people, and, I got to tell you, some of the stuff I do in the weight room, I would put closer to voodoo than I put to, you know, the, the sound <laughs> scientific training. When I'm trying to get a 14-year-old boy to rise up at the state meet and throw his lifetime best against, you know, guys who are Division One football players and were, you know, touched by the angel when they were born with great D DNA, I would say I've stretched the truth a few times. I might have made up a few things about life to prepare them to go out there by themselves in a field and throw a discus shot, javelin or whatever, or, or knock, you know, <laughs> you got a That's, kid who's 5'9", 140, going against a six foot six kid who's going to be a D1 defensive lineman. And you feel, you know, oh, you, you have better technique. And since you're shorter, you'll be able to stay lower. Your pad the leverage is better. Yeah. 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 And, you, and then the kid jogs on the field and, the other coach looks at you. Do you believe that? Oh, hell no. I don't believe that. No, we're, we're going to the right the whole game. He's lining up. Left. We're going right. <laughs> That's funny because I still consider that kind of stuff and the ability to be able to do it and get the kid to, to take it and work with it is, is the art of coaching. That's the art of coaching. And a lot of times we're spending a lot of time uh, on the technical aspects of coaching with with having a kid look perfect and execute something perfect when really all we really need him to do is get the job done. Do the job. So that that's all we really need him to do. So back to uh, your team versus the people on your side, the people on your team, you know, they're out there to help you. It's just my, you can tell me what you think, but I think they're, they're there to help you. To a certain degree, but the guys that are on your side, the people that are on your side, men, women, boys, girls, family, people forget a lot of times that, that a lot of those family members, they may not know what you're doing at all, but they're on your side. 
I mean, you got some that are on your team, but that may not be on your side. But it's being able to navigate through all of that. Then when the time gets when the times get hard and whatever you're doing, lean on that. The ones that are on your side, and they will. I mean, I can I look back over my career, and you know, my mom and dad when I was in, especially when I was in high school, Coach Mon was really good about. You are going to have bad days in Division One. Everybody's great. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. great. And uh, you're going to have bad days. And he was one of the kind of guys who would just, he was on my side. He got me. We remained uh, very close until his death in 2006. To me, there's good coaching and there's that transcendent coaching. And for me, right. transcendent coaching is, uh, I just got a series of messages from one of my 1996 athletes. And he wanted some advice on coaching his daughter in the discus. And I thought to myself, this is when you know that it's beyond, you know, just the state meet or the nationals or whatever. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. I just got, I too got a, a call from a former athlete, but he was back in 2010. He's training a kid that is off to college. And he says, how do yeah. I do this? And I'm like, dude, you've done this before. I said, just stop and think about it. But it's fun. It's fun. And when you say transcending, how do you judge success? Well, that's it to me. You know, when guys are coming along and they're saying, hey, help me out. We've said this many times. Some of the worst teams we ever coached were the state championship teams. Sometimes they were just so gifted, no matter what you did, and that you might have a team that went three and six, but those three games are just epic, you know, fights to the death. and. <laughs> it's funny because those are the kids who tend to be the lawyers and the my doctor, my lawyer, my mortician, uh, so many college professors are my former athletes. And I take such pride in that yeah. because that's to me, life success. I've always said one of my goals is that all my athletes would be a good neighbor. That's a good statement. They're yes. the ones that would mow their lawn and they'd pop those dandelions out and, you know, shovel their <laughs> own wall. You don't have to worry about trimming the fence because they got their side and your side. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the newer stuff. I guess we've always used data in sports, but how we're using data now is is a lot different than the way we used to. Talk about your experience with that, you know, the growth of data and the technology and when to use it, et cetera. But the thing for me, you know, I'm an Olympic lifting coach and I'm a track and field guy. So we've had data since day one. Right. You know, and the problem is a lot of the sports are trying to pick up. You look at the way a good movie and book to read is Moneyball because no one believed in Moneyball. No one did. Right. Nobody. Right. And the movie captures a lot of it. The book does a lot more depth. But all of a sudden, you realize that all these things about baseball were just not true. They were. I wouldn't say myths because you probably would still win some games with some of those those techniques. But you can see, especially the last two seasons, that the analytics now drive the entire game. It's home run or strikeout. In football, in American football, what we did there, it, it, you can't use data because they keep changing the rules to make it more and more favorable to score more points. And I'm not being a jerk, and I'm not being no, a no, I get it. defensive guy because I am defensive. If you keep changing the rules, like, you know, you can barely even touch a wide receiver. When I played, 
if they cut my knees, they cut me on my knees, the next play, I was going to try to put them in the morgue, take them around the head, you know? Yeah. That was okay back then. Now you can't, and now you got to just, you know, they, they wear feather boas and they run down. And they, you, know, <laughs> you have to be careful. I still think we have to be careful with data. I know we now have the GPS monitors in rugby, soccer, football, and some other sports that give us data. But most of us knew this already. Like when you play soccer, a lot it's a lot of shuffle, shuffle, jog, 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 sprint. Shuffle, right. shuffle, jog, 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 sprint. I mean, that's been true since I played in the 70s. So sometimes we have to sit back with the data. And it's good because someone, I'll be at a meeting and someone will say, well, it's actually seven kilometers they run. It's not, I always say you run 10 kilometers in a, in a soccer football game. No, it's actually seven. Okay, good. You win, but it still yeah. doesn't win the game. We're at an interesting time in track and field because uh, full professionalism has really started to show up now. I think the athletes are throwing farther. I mean, it could still be the, you know, the stuff we're not supposed to talk about, but at the same time, their adherence to the whole body stuff is kind of interesting. By the way, I don't know if you caught this. Uh, it was a little blurb, but Mac Jones of the uh, New England Patriots, he's uh, going into a second season. He realized already that he needs to take sleep, nutrition, right. weight. He's, what, 23 years old. Usually in the NFL, it's when the guys are going out the door that suddenly they Where start. Where they're trying to get something to yeah. make them last a little longer. So one of the things I think that's happening, and just follow my point, isn't necessary that the data is changing the way we coach. I think the data is changing the way the athletes hear. They're hearing things sooner. You know, the 1,500 meters has been the 1,500 meters a long time. Yeah. But the 15-year-old runner is now hearing things that he wouldn't have heard until it was 23, 24, 25. I think they probably uh, uh, could I say that they're understanding the demand of the sport or the event a little better. Could I say that or a little better, a little earlier? Yeah, and not just—is that a bald spot or do I need to, is that, look at that? <laughs> look, I can get you a good barber. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think what's happening is that we've already known that the event is this is that. Strong safety needs to do this. But now I think what's happening with most, a lot of athletes is they're going, but to be able to do this, I need to have this set of skills to do that. And then, but if I don't have my recovery and uh, rejuvenation or we're going to call it restoration, that that's the toolkit of nutrition and, and sleep and meditation and sauna and all the rest of the stuff. And on top of that, there's this and, you know, and I got to say as much as, People harped on Tom Brady, what, five years ago is, I think, when the book came out. A lot of people now, it's not unusual to see, I've got this little, you know, I got a Theragun in the other room. I have a sauna right there. If I need to relax my neck, 20 years ago, I would just say, I need to relax my neck. Now I have three or four tools in the house that'll, that'll assist and help me do it. That makes a lot of sense, though. The way I say it is, their training IQ is higher, faster than it was in the past. Yes. They come at 15, like you said, at 15, they know what, you know, maybe we knew at 23 or 21, yeah. you know? Or, you know, we might have been told it, but it was like, yeah, whatever, coach. 
And it, I mean, it's still true. I mean, you know, water right. is still going to be the best thing to drink. Sleep is by far the best recovery tool you have. Protein, veggies, water. Have a, an appropriate social life. Have an appropriate network of support. And that could be your team in many cases. We all know that. But now the emphasis is a lot more. It's good that you know it. Well, if you don't do it, these other 85 people do, and you're gone. And that's as much as people hate the butcher system of American sports, the one thing it does do is it holds you accountable. If you're not good enough, you're gone. And if you, if you skip the little stuff, there's plenty of people there to take it, take it from you. I know right now for me, and I don't know how it, how it is for you, but as an independent practitioner, somebody that's out there all the time, I work with, I work with institutions, teams, and schools and organizations often but I can't say that that's generally what I do all the time. So I, I say I'm an independent practitioner, but I go into those situations wanting to be a, a value added to the coach. A lot of times finding your way, you know, how do you get into the, how have you done it in the past for our, our young guys out there who are working out there by themselves? How do you go into a situation where you say, hey, coach, I think I can help you? Or, hey, coach, do you need any help? Or how do you get yourself in the door? I think I'm in a different realm now. I mean, uh, we were talking about this not long ago. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, I used to barnstorm around the state with a couple of other coaches, and we would do discus and shot and javelin clinics. And so for me, I think I, I, think I fertilized and seeded this uh, lots of decades ago, so I don't remember okay. it as well. When I go into a system, I, I generally, I mean, I'll bore you with the first couple of things I do. First thing I do is I look at, the, as a strength coach, I just look at their program and I add up some numbers. I mean, the push, the pull, and the squat numbers, I think, should be the exact same every week. And usually they're not. There's 237 pushes, there's, you know, 70 pulls and 25 squats. And the coaches right. hate it when they keep saying no. Five sets of five in the push, five sets of five in the pull, five sets of five in the squat, three days a week. So at the end of each week, you have 75 of each. And then the next thing I do is I look at their squats. Are they authentic squats? Are they quarter squats, which have value, and half squats, which have some value? Right. And then after that, I look, do you do hinges and loaded carries? Very often, people say they got their money's worth when I show them the goblet squat and, and the farmer carry. Yeah. Those, those, those change the game. A lot of what I do when I, when I do this consulting work, when I get invited in, is the biggest thing a lot, of, a lot of good programs need is just to go, yeah, that's good. Right. And the bad programs just need, they just need a route. We're terrible. How do we get out of this? And then, well, just with a, a new set of eyes, I can say, well, you're okay here. So that's kind of, that's my whole, the last decade of my career, 12 years, yeah. And for our audience and some of the younger guys that are, that are out there trying to get started or trying to seed, like you said, you know, what you, what you plant, you'll sow. So get out there and let your face be seen. You might not, you might not get hired by a coach or, but they know who you are. They start to see you do some work uh, in the community, get your face out there so that, you know, when you come back around and, you know, maybe even I, I'm in Texas now, but in Carolina, I did the, I did the same thing. I would show up to the coach, say, hey, coach, 
not trying to be here, just just here to observe, just watching to see what you're doing. And then they'd start asking me questions. And I tell you, I tell you, this is what I think. Uh, but there's more than one right way to do things. A lot of guys need to know, OK, you don't have to do it exactly like that or exactly like that. But you got to go this way. You got to go this direction, because if you don't go this direction, then you're going backwards or sideways. And that's when you get off track. So, yeah, there's a coach here in Utah, the late, great Rick Bojack. The two of us became friends. We both went to St. Joseph, the Worker Parish. And uh, long after we finished coaching against each other, we just became kind of like buddies. And, I, and what I began to realize, and he, I thought he was an outstanding coach. I don't want to get too technical, but he ran the veer on offense. And everything, he had this vision of an American football team. He told me one day, oh, yeah, the perfect game for me would be 28 to nothing, where we get the ball and we eat up the entire quarter, score a touchdown. You guys are so frustrated because you haven't seen the ball. You make, you know, you get out there, three, five, six plays, and you punt it back to us. By the way, he never did punt returns because it was too much work. He just left his defense out there and stopped fake punts. He goes, well, it's high school. It's going to be a 30-yard punt. If we rush it, we can hit the kicker, and then they get the ball. If we do it, so just kick it. doesn't matter where it goes. And then his defense was based on not losing the big play. A couple of weeks later, he says to me, you know, I thought about it and I was wrong. 28 to nothing is not the perfect score. 21 to nothing is where we take a knee at the end of the game and run the clock out. And his idea with, with the Veer team, and I remember coaching against them, and it's horrible to watch. They keep gaining five or six yards on every dive. So it's first and 10, and then it's second and four, first and 10, second and four, first and 10, second. And they would take every second off the clock to run a play. He told his quarterbacks, until you saw the official doing this, don't snap the ball. And what would happen is that's basically about a play or two a minute, a minute. So yeah. the first quarter would be over because he keep tells running backs to stay in bounds until the game was for the whole game. So the whole first quarter would be gone, and they'd finally score. I'm like, oh, okay, we're getting the ball back. <laughs> to me, that's genius coaching. That's when you have a grand strategy. So his big vision of football was to do that. His weightlifting program supported that style of play. So he wanted his athletes ready about every 30 seconds to go, not every 10 seconds. You know, I'm not saying it's completely different for conditioning, but a different vision of it. His defense supported his offense. His special teams were very simple. So his grand strategy, his strategy, and his tactics were all lined up. I think as a coach, one of the things you have to do sometimes is fold your own arms and say to yourself, okay, the cliche, what's the big rock here? What's the 30,000-foot view of this? And then bring it in closer and closer and closer. But every time you make a decision here, on the ground floor, look up to see, does that fit true with what we thought big picture? Or is this, we just threw in something new? Like if you decide to go out and buy a bunch of easy curl bars for your football program, because they're on sale, but you're a team that wants to knock people off the ball and not look good on the beach. Those easy right. curl bars, even though they were cheap, don't fit your view of how you want to win football games. That's honestly thinking big picture. And if for today's strength coaches walking in where, you know, you're the, the head strength coach for, especially in a high school for all the sports, mm -hmm. 
it would behoove you to, to go to the head coaches and say, hey, what do you want to be? Who are you? What's your, what's your oh, approach? Absolutely. Because that's the way I'm going to train your team. And they get a program offline. If you're doing a strength program from a hyper-successful program that actively recruits and cherry-picks athletes from other areas versus a homegrown school, like North County Union High School in uh, Newport, Vermont, up there in the Canadian border, they're not going to get a lot of five-star recruits from Alabama, Tennessee, and Florida to go to the northernmost part of Vermont, right? Right. But if North Country Union High School is winning games, I would like to talk to that coach more than I talk to some coach from a superpower school. You know, I always joke about when LeBron James was in, I could have been a great high school basketball coach with LeBron James on my team. I would have rolled him the ball slowly so he wouldn't hurt himself. <laughs> and I kept the other four boys standing right next to me. And I'd say, "You no, no. If the ball goes out of bounds, one of you gets to throw it into him. Okay? And we would win the state championship. Two problems. One, I don't have LeBron James. And two, I don't coach basketball, thankfully. And I think that's what, this is to me what we need to do. You need to look at programs that are true and real. I mean, I remember one time this coach telling me it's kind of funny about they had gone from a, being a terrible team to a state championship team. Well, the principal had brought in nine athletes from another state, and they only stayed a semester at the school, and they played football. Well, it wasn't five sets of three versus five sets of two. It was nine Division One athletes suddenly on a terrible program. Right. That's a whole different ball game. But I, I have a similar experience with a soccer team where the coach believed that what they needed to do, all of them needed to go out and be uh, run two miles and they didn't do any sprints. And they, if they ran track or, or cross country, that's what he encouraged that. He encouraged Pilates and, and, and a whole, whole bunch of stuff that the girls look fit, but they weren't prepared to play soccer. There was no explosiveness. There was no, if you ask them to, to walk, jog, shuffle, run, sprint for that 90 minutes, that first 45 minutes, it was, you know, everybody's got the tongues on the ground. So I, I came in and I said, listen, coach, this is where you got to do this. And I said, your best player standing over here. Well, she's not fit. I said, yeah, but she can go all day in a walk, run, sprint and be explosive and effective where you have your, your front runners are, they're done after about 15, 20 minutes. I said, it's, it's about the way you're training. They're in great shape. I said, yeah, they're in great shape, but they're not conditioned, which is different for the game of, of soccer. So. Yeah. so when I was in school, the U.S. Army, they used to send these out. This one's called Sports for Life. That's when they changed it. But on the bottom, it was conditioning for a purpose. And I always thought when I read that the very first time, I thought, huh. And that should inspire you forever. There, that's me. There it is. <laughs> but it's not just conditioning and more conditioning. It's fitting that conditioning in to, to the task at hand. And the truth right. is, I say this all the time. If we get uh, you to throw the discus 245 feet and you don't feel good for three weeks and your heart rate stays at 180 for five days, you're still the best discus thrower in history. So I don't want to hear about cardiovascular conditioning when it comes to certain things. As, and I don't want to hear about how strong, what your bench press numbers are for your female high school soccer team. Right. Okay, you, got, you guys all bench 200. That's great. But that's not 
going to help the sport. And maybe it will. I tell you one thing: you guys get that team in a fist fight. That'd be cool. <laughs> if you see what you do with that, they'd have to change the game. Yeah. So I think we're spinning around the same concept. You've got to be in shape. Well, I sometimes joke: there's not strength and conditioning; it's conditioning and more conditioning. But you got to make sure that you're in condition for the tasks at hand. And the mistake we make sometimes, this is why I love multi-sport athletes. You know, once you've wrestled, there's never a football practice that's hard after you wrestle. No, I, I, the I agree. The hardest football practice in the history of American football is about the first eight minutes of a typical wrestling day. Yep, <laughs> I you know? agree. And I agree. I don't know if this is exactly what I want, but getting your high jumpers and long jumpers in shape for the season Basketball is probably as good as some really hyper-scientific plyometric program. You know, Based on and, what they're required to do, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I, people ask me the best way to, you know, I want my boy to be better in football, and I always tell them, well, do what I did. And what's that? Wrestled, ran the hurdles, threw the discus, and in the summer I played uh, in the, the basketball and soccer leagues because that's what you did. It was just they were church, basically church leagues. And they go, well, that's not very scientific. And it's like, yeah, well, oddly, you know, I did play with a lot of guys who played in the NFL, but yeah, all those guys were multi-sport athletes too. I was fortunate with to to play with some really good athletes that, and we were all multi-sport, like you said. That yeah. I played football, wrestled, ran track, played baseball, uh, and I didn't play organized basketball. But when they came with the little community league, I'd yeah. go out there and hack somebody up a little hack, bit. Hack them, yeah. <laughs> The great part about sitting down and having this discussion and, and catching up with you, Dan, is to hear you say that, and I say this all the time, but to hear you say things really haven't changed a lot. We've changed as people, but the approach you need to take to, to get better at sport is pretty much the same. I've got the 1971 track and field Omni book behind me. There's no real discussion on the rotational shot put. There's no real discussion on the Fosbury flop high jump technique. But the bulk of that book is as true and usable as it was in 1971. If you use J.K. Doherty's principles from 1971, you're an outstanding track and field coach. I gave it to a friend of mine, but I had Joe DiMaggio's book on baseball from, what, 1947. I gave it to him and he goes, the funniest thing is what Joe DiMaggio was teaching in 1947 is still very valid and usable now. John Heisman's book, uh, Heisman on Football, 1931, Block, Tackle, and Protect the Ball. Sometimes I think with all the information that's out there, we got a lot of stuff coming at us. We just need to be able to, I don't know where discernment went, the ability to be able to know that's good or that's not good or that feels right or that doesn't feel right or, you know, we just kind of. There's a problem. I mean, you're not going to do, financially, you're not going to do very well with keeping things simple. Right. I mean, I'm not being a jerk. I'm just saying. No. You know how much money I make telling people to drink water and sleep more? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. When I go to schools and I say, you guys Instead of, you know, doing this, you got to do this, you know, there's, there's no money in that, you know. Right. As we always do as man, the time goes by real fast, but that was a great segue we can use right in there. And about uh, 
we were starting it, but uh, where's the profession now? Where's it going in your mind? From your view right now, I could tell you from, you know, my view, which is a few years behind you. I'm very concerned that uh, we're letting the certifications take over the, uh, over the coaching in the weight room. People are telling me that they've got this set of, I'll get emails from people and they'll have about 500 letters behind their name, but I don't see bachelor's, I don't see master's, I don't see PhD. You know, I see one and two day certs and it's, or I took a test. Listen, I know I could pass the test. Just I taught a long time, so I know how to take tests. Right. But you know the answer they want you to say, but that's not always the right answer. So my concern is, it's funny because I'm the Hercules Barbell Club. I've been a member since 1980. We almost lost our certification two years ago because Dave Turner and myself, neither of us are credentialed coaches by the organization that changes its name about every two years. We are the oldest weightlifting club in the state of Utah, but we were, we were about to get kicked out. I think we're active again. I was at a weightlifting meet. All these, these young coaches were asking me all these things, and I was showing them, oh, no, don't do that. you got to do this. Oh, okay. Well, they were all certified coaches, but none of them had the experience to teach a, a fish how to swim. They didn't have the skill set to teach somebody how to put their hand on a bar without a three-hour conversation about knee angle. And knee angle means nothing. Because yeah, of the step up to the bar and do this. Wiggle your toes, push your heels to the ground, and let's go. Yeah. So for me, my biggest concern, and of course now we're finally getting paid, so now people are getting interested. Dinosaurs like myself, who, who still do this for free because we love it, we're going to be a dying breed. But the funny thing is, I mean, yeah, the athletes in Division One football are bigger, faster, stronger than they've ever been. There's no question about that. There's a lot of reasons for that, too, besides just yeah. five sets of two or three sets of three. Right. And the the off-season idiocy, I mean, that one coach who he may or may not have coached here at Utah, he may or may not have coached at Florida, he might have had a spectacular flame-out at a certain Jaguar-ish NFL team. You know, he's famous for closing the doors and putting out buckets so his athletes can vomit because he's trying to, you know, just you read uh, Meat on the Hoof about Texas in the 1960s, and you, right. you hear about this vomit stuff. I have never, ever, ever seen the value of an American football player vomiting. I don't see how that makes you a better football player. Yeah, what's the purpose of that? Having your whole team learn how to do a kettlebell swing is going to make them better at tackle. Having your whole team snatch body weight is going to make them a scary on defense. You know, having your whole team do hill sprints is going to do – all the magic of training the whole body without any injuries. And no one's going to vomit doing any of those things I just told you. You mentioned, you know, American football, and, and I was a running back. And, and by virtue of the, the name of the position, run, in the offseason, I, I spent a lot of time doing that, although I spent my time in the weight room. I liked mm -hmm. it there. And uh, when I first started working with, you know, skilled guys, the, the receivers and the running backs, I said, hey, we're going to run first. Well, we like to lift first and then run. I said, no, we're going to run first because by virtue of what you do, this is the priority. We need to do this. And then when we come in, we'll select the right weight for you to lift. And we're not going to try to max you out, but for you to, to make progress. Yeah. So you're going to get stronger, but stronger running. Yeah. Well, Barry Sanders, uh, Roger Craig, Jerry Rice, rule one sprint hills. 
Roger Craig's book, Strictly Business, which I think there's a two-page discussion of hill sprints in there, probably the most important two pages in, in modern American history, uh, football history. Hill sprints, hill sprints, hill sprints. It is, hill sprints is the way the game is played. The game feels like hill sprints. Yep. Listen, Dan, we're not going to wait, you know, five years or whatever it is to to have you back again. It's always fun to, to have you on. I enjoy talking, as as you can tell. I took the whole thing from Chris, but he doesn't care. Look at him. He's so excited. Look at him. That's my guy right there. He is on my side. He's on your side, not just your team. He's on my side. I'm on his side, and 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 that's what we do. Sometimes he'll carry the load. Sometimes I will. But this was fun for me and exciting for me, and Chris will have 15,000 things to say once we get off. He always does. But uh, I was excited to get you back on, and, and thanks for – Let's do this more often. Yeah. These afternoons, uh, right around now, right around that 11.30 to about 2 is just always fine for me. I've tried to schedule my life out for this kind of pocket in the middle of every day. We don't want to monopolize it, but we'll definitely give you the needle. And we're, we're thinking about doing one thing uh, that we bring up to, to certain guests because we, we definitely want them back for that, called 24 Hours of Performance. We're going to go 24 hours. We're going to be on live and we're going to need some other co-hosts to help us bring in guests and put on folks and just talk about performance from a, a variety of perspectives. That's what we want to do. Okay. That's in our planning schedule right now. So we'll keep you up to date on that. And if you're able, right around this time, we know, hey, we can get we can get Dan to be on. We are done as we speak. Chris, you got anything you want to add? No, I'm very appreciative of, of the education today. Just to sit there and listen is uh, means a lot when you're younger. No spring chicken, but I can just sit back and listen once in a while. And uh, listeners, danjohn.net, tons of information uh, for free. And then I have a paid site, danjohnuniversity.com. Use this uh, code ESPEN. And that'll get you a big discount for a couple months, okay? Okay, E-S-P-E-N. Use the code danjohn.net. danjohnuniversity.com. Dot com. danjohnuniversity.com. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. It just keeps giving back over and over and over again. <laughs> Be quiet, Chris. I'm going to go head out and coach. All right. And we're out. That's it for another episode of Performance Talk. Come back next time as Yule and Chris welcome their next guest to the show to discuss what's going on in performance. For sponsorship information, or if you would like to be part of the show, leave your inquiry at theperformancetalk at gmail.com. That's theperformancetalk at gmail.com. Be sure to check in for future episodes of Performance Talk. Performance Talk.